Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In February 1992, two brothers were sitting together in a hotel room in Miami. They were far from home. The pair normally ran a gym in South London, which was pretty evident by their bulging biceps. But they also had another passion, making music. And that's what brought them to the U.S. Together with another musician, they had recorded an unexpected hit song poking fun at some of the clients from their gym who spent hours in front of mirrors admiring themselves. They spent about $800 to record a demo of the song, but couldn't find a record company that was interested. So they put it out on a small indie label created just for them. Not exactly a recipe for success. So you can imagine their surprise when the brothers turned on the radio in that Miami hotel room and heard these words. How you doing? It's Tarzan Dan, sanitize the tantalize. I'm here for your protection. Got the biggest and best songs on the chart this week. And now with America's new number one hit, Right Said Fred. Are you too sexy for your cat? And that's how Fred and Richard Fairbrass learned their song, I'm Too Sexy, had reached the ultimate position atop the music charts. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at a year when musicians made history, ventured into new territory, and proved their worth in ways that made us jump. These are the number one singles from 1992. When the clock struck midnight on January 1st, 1992, George H.W. Bush was still the U.S. president. The Canadian prime minister was Brian Mulroney. Roseanne was the number one sitcom. Hook was the number one movie. And Super Nintendo was the hot new gaming system everyone wanted. As for the song at the top of the charts, it belonged to the self-proclaimed king of pop. The song Black or White by Michael Jackson first went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on December 7th, 1991. The pop rock rap fusion is from Jackson's Dangerous album. You might remember the song's catchy guitar riff. A lot of people think Slash from Guns N' Roses played the riff, but he actually just appeared in the video for the song. The guy on guitar was actually Bill Bottrell, who's the same dude rapping on the song. At the time, Black or White was interpreted by many as being a response by Michael Jackson to the unrelenting media and public fascination about the changing color of his skin. The song was accompanied by an 11-minute video that cost $4 million to make and featured none other than Macaulay Culkin. It included a pretty cool morphing sequence, which I have to say was kind of mind-blowing back in the early 90s. It showed the faces of people from different backgrounds and races seamlessly blending from one to another. The video seemed to be calling for racial unity, that we were all part of the same human family despite the color of our skin. But it was a different part of the video that received the most attention. In the final four minutes, Jackson screams, smashes windows, aggressively grabs his crotch, and zips up his fly while performing his signature dance moves on a shadowy street. Then he morphs into a Black Panther and slinks away. The Panther dance, as it was called, seemed out of place with the rest of the video. 
But more importantly, it was deemed way too racy for many viewers when the video premiered on Fox TV following an episode of The Simpsons. In fact, so many people called the network to complain that a decision was made to cut out the dance sequence when it went into rotation on MTV. Despite the controversy, Black or White stayed in the top spot for a total of seven weeks, tying with Jackson's 1983 song Billie Jean as his two longest number one hits. So you might be wondering what song finally knocked Jackson out of the top spot in 1992. If you're thinking maybe something by Nirvana, Pearl Jam, or even Dr. Dre, artists that left a major impact on music in the 90s, well, you'd be wrong. On January 25th, 1992, the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 belonged to a quartet from Oklahoma City. All For Love was the second number one hit for Color Me Bad. Their first, I Adore Me Amore, topped the Billboard Hot 100 for two weeks in September 1991. Brian Abrams, Kevin Thornton, Sam Waters, and Mark Calderon met at Oklahoma City High School in the mid-80s. They formed a vocal R&B group that was kind of a post-New Kids on the Block acapella pop hip-hop act. They moved to New York City in 1989, where they got their big break after a chance meeting with singer John Bon Jovi. Legend has it they sang a song for the rocker after spotting him outside a movie theater. Bon Jovi invited the guys to perform on stage at his next concert. The following year, they signed a record deal and recorded a debut album. And even before it was released, this song landed a spot in the 1991 movie New Jack City. I Wanna Sex You Up peaked at number two on the Billboard 100, blocked from the number one spot by Paula Abdul's hit, Rush Rush. As for All For Love, its reign at the top of the charts was short-lived, lasting only one week before being knocked out by one of the best pop duets of all time. George Michael and Elton John recorded this live version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me during a performance at Wembley Arena on March 23, 1991. You may remember from the recent History of the 90s episode on George Michael, in 1991, the singer embarked on the Cover to Cover tour, which featured mainly cover versions of songs by Michael's favorite artists. As part of the tour, he regularly included the Elton John song Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, and for his final show at Wembley, he brought out Sir Elton as a surprise guest. The live recording of the duet was released in November 1991 and went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on February 1st, 1992. Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me was co-written nearly 20 years earlier by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. They've said they were trying to create something big and powerful, like You've Lost That Loving Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. The original version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me appeared on Elton's 1974 album Caribou, and it peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. 
The Wembley duet in 91 wasn't the first time that Elton and George Michael performed the song together. Here they are, George singing Elton on piano at the Live Aid concert in 1985. All proceeds from the 1991 single were divided among 10 different charities. And the song was nominated for a Grammy for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo or Group with a Vocal, but it lost to Beauty and the Beast by Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson. As for its staying power at the top of the charts, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me didn't have what it takes to fight off a sexy new dance pop song. I'm Too Sexy was released by Right Said Fred in July 1991. As I mentioned off the top of the episode, the group was made up of two brothers, Fred and Richard Fairbrass, along with Rob Manzoli. Fred and Richard had been making music for over 20 years and had actually toured with Joy Division in the late 70s. In the early 90s, the brothers were running a gym to make ends meet, and one hot day, Richard stood topless in front of a mirror and started singing I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt to a beat they had previously come up with while working in the studio. Everybody started laughing, but the guys knew they were on to something. They nailed down the rest of the lyrics over the next month and recorded a demo. But as I mentioned earlier, every label they approached turned them down. Right Said Fred did not give up, though. Eventually, a promoter got the song on a radio station in the UK, and things pretty much exploded from there. Today, the phrase, I'm too sexy, is a permanent part of our lexicon. I mean, who hasn't said they're too sexy for something? I'm too sexy is baked into the fabric of pop culture in so many ways. Everything from lyrical shoutouts by artists like Jay-Z to a popular Toyota Camry ad campaign in the year 2000. In 2017, it was interpolated in Taylor Swift's number one hit, Look What You Made Me Do. Interpolated is different than sampling. It means that Taylor and Jack Antonoff were inspired by I'm Too Sexy when they wrote Look What You Made Me Do. So much so that each of the three guys from Right Said Fred were actually credited as co-writers on Taylor's song. But the guys didn't get the same credit on Beyonce's recent song, Alien Superstar, which also interpolated I'm Too Sexy. After the song came out, the guys went public saying the singer did not ask their permission and called her arrogant. But Beyonce's team said the comments were false. Not only was permission granted for the song to be used, Wright said Fred were also paid. As for I'm Too Sexy, it stayed at number one on the Billboard 100 in 1992 for three weeks until it was replaced by this rock power ballad. In 1992, heavy metal, hard rock, and the power ballad were in their twilight years. Grunge and hip-hop were nipping at their heels. But metal band Mr. Big made it in under the wire with the acoustic song To Be With You. 
Lead singer Eric Martin had actually written the song when he was a teenager about a friend named Patricia Reynolds, who read poetry to him and helped him write songs. Martin says she was super pretty and really smart, so some days he couldn't get a chance to talk to her. He had to wait in line with other boys. The greens and the blues refer to a mood ring that she bought him. To Be With You was the second single from Mr. Big's sophomore album, Lean Into It. And their manager had to work really hard to convince the record label to include it. Because it was nothing like the other hard rock songs the band was known for. But once the single hit radio stations, it spread like wildfire. And on February 29, 1992, it went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed for three weeks. Singer Eric Martin said in a recent interview that when he heard the news that they had hit number one, the first thing he said to his bandmates was, I'm going to buy a cell phone. Manager Herbie Herbert congratulated the guys in Mr. Big and told them to celebrate. But he added, by the way, this is never, ever going to happen to you again. And he was right. To Be With You was the band's only number one. Another song from Lean Into It, Just Take My Heart, peaked at number 16. But Mr. Big looks back on the time with pride. In fact, in 2017, they released their ninth studio album, and it included a song called 1992, which is a semi-autobiographical tongue-in-cheek reading of the song. Among other things, the lyrics say, Thought about a girl that I once knew, put her in a song with some greens and blues. Record company said to us, thank you, man, and then they threw us right into the garbage can. But the good people listened and they pulled us through. I was number one in 1992. You know who else was number one in 1992? Vanessa Williams with this sultry ballad. Save the Best for Last from Vanessa Williams' second album, The Comfort Zone, was her first number one single. And it was considered to be the final step on her path to redemption, following a scandal that almost ruined her career before it had even started. In 1983, Williams made history when she was crowned the first Black Miss America. But near the end of her reign, she was forced to step down after Penthouse published nude photos of her without permission. Because of the scandal, Williams lost endorsement deals, and it looked like her dream of being a performer might be derailed. But she fought hard to regain her reputation as a serious singer and actor. And in 1988, she released her debut album, The Right Stuff, which was certified gold with three singles in the top 10. Williams' sophomore album, The Comfort Zone, was an even bigger commercial success, eventually going triple platinum. Thanks mostly to Save the Best for Last, which stayed at number one for five weeks. It also received two Grammy nominations for Song of the Year and Record of the Year, but in both cases lost to Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. In the end, it didn't matter. The song was just the beginning for Williams. She went on to record several more hits, including The Colors of the Wind, the theme song for the 1995 Disney movie Pocahontas, which peaked at number four on the Hot 100. She also went on to star on Broadway, in movies, and numerous TV shows, including Ugly Betty, where she was nominated three times as Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series. 
Vanessa Williams certainly lived up to expectations after her number one hit in 1992. But that's not always the case for every musician who reaches the top of the charts. Take, for example, this teenage rap duo from Atlanta who were known for wearing their clothes backwards. Criss Cross released their infectious hit song, Jump, in February 1992. And by April 25th, it had climbed to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed for eight weeks. 13-year-old best friends Chris Mac Daddy Kelly and Chris Daddy Mac Smith were discovered in 1990 by the now-legendary producer Jermaine Dupree. Dupree was just 19 when he spotted the young boys at Atlanta's Greenbrier Mall. The producer says he noticed their crazy clothes and slow-fade hairstyles, saying there was something about them that made him want to work with the young duo. So together they produced a demo tape that led to a deal with Roughhouse Records. Jump appeared on their first album, Totally Crossed Out, which was entirely written by Dupree. The album went multi-platinum and led to an opening spot on Michael Jackson's European tour in the summer of 1992. The pair also appeared in the Jackson video for the song Jam, alongside Heavy D and Michael Jordan. They were in other videos, too, for Run DMC and TLC. In 1992 and 93, there was really no escaping Criss Cross. They appeared on the Arsenio Hall show in Living Color, the Today Show, as well as numerous kids' shows. They recorded the Rugrats rap for the Nickelodeon cartoon. <laughs> And they even had their own video game for the Sega CD console called Crisscross Make My Video, which incidentally has been listed as one of the 20 worst video games of all time. And of course, hordes of preteens began wearing baggy clothes backwards to match the crisscross style. Plus, these young rappers had big fans within the hip hop community. After Crisscross won Best New Artist at the 1993 America Music Awards, rap legend Reverend Run from Run DMC said, Crisscross is our future, rap's future. I'm proud of them. Being one of the founders of rap makes me feel good that it's in their hands. But despite the accolades and love for Crisscross, they never managed to make that leap from kid rappers to adult hitmakers. As Crisscross got older, they tried to toughen up their image, and it just didn't translate. And even though they released two moderately successful albums in 1993 and 96, they never had another hit like Jump. By the end of the late 90s, they broke up. In February 2013, the pair did reunite for one night at a 20th anniversary party for Jermaine Dupri's label, So So Def Records. Then sadly, just three months later, Chris Mac Daddy Kelly died from a drug overdose in Atlanta. He was 34 years old. Crisscross may have been short-lived, but they definitely managed to leave a lasting impact. Their sound combined hard rap rhythms with bubblegum pop melodies, which helped make rap more accessible to the mainstream. Plus, their success broke the dominance of hip-hop acts originating from the East Coast or the West Coast, and it helped pave the way for the emergence of Atlanta artists like Arrested Development and Outkast. After dominating the top of the charts for eight weeks, Crisscross was finally replaced by an artist that is now synonymous with the 90s. But back then, she was still out to prove something. 
Mariah Carey slipped into the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 with I'll Be There on June 20th, 1992. The song, which had previously been a number one for the Jackson 5 in 1970, was recorded by Mariah during an MTV Unplugged performance in New York in March 92. The diva has said she was scared and nervous during her seven-song set, and that she had no idea that the Unplugged show would become, in her words, such a thing. Mariah apparently agreed to perform at the Unplugged concert in response to critics who doubted she could replicate the five-octave vocal range, which was in full display on her first two albums. She wanted to silence naysayers who believed she couldn't pull it off live, and that she did. The EP for the Unplugged appearance sold nearly 3 million copies and was a catalyst for Mariah's launch into superstardom. I'll Be There, which also featured Trey Lorenz, was her sixth number one hit. With 19 number one hits, Mariah Carey is the solo artist with the most number ones in the chart's history. Throughout her career, the singer has spent a record 84 weeks at the number one position on the Hot 100, becoming the artist with the most weeks at number one in US history. So perhaps she didn't mind that in 1992, her unplugged hit only stayed in the top spot for two weeks before a Seattle rapper took over with a song that made it clear what he likes. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. Yeah, when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Baby Got Back by Anthony Ray, better known as Sir Mix-a-Lot, reached number one on the Hot 100 on July 4th, 1992. You might think the song was just the ultimate booty call, but it was actually a little bit more than that. According to Sir Mix-a-Lot, it was a defense of women, especially women of color, who aren't built like a stop sign. His words, not mine. The rapper said he wrote the song after watching a Budweiser ad during the Super Bowl that featured skinny white women. He said each one of the Budweiser girls, as they were called back then, was shaped like a stop sign with big hair and straight up and down bird legs. Sir Mix-a-Lot said he was tired of it because again, in his words, black men like curves. He wanted to tell all women they are beautiful and they can do whatever they want to do. They don't have to subscribe to the standards set by magazines like Vogue. If his song didn't catch your attention in 1992, the video for Baby Got Back probably did. It starts off with two young white women looking through a window at a black woman in a tight dress as one of them utters this classic line. Oh my God, Becky, look at her butt. It is so big. She looks like one of those rap guys' girlfriends. It goes on to feature Sir Mix-a-Lot in his iconic Mac Daddy leather coat and fedora, wrapping on top of a giant pair of butt cheeks. The 50-foot-tall mounds look like they are made out of paper mache. He's surrounded by black female dancers in tight bodysuits showing off their butts. Initially, MTV banned the video, but eventually it relented when a number of other musicians caused a fuss, including Bruce Springsteen, which, to be honest, doesn't really seem like an issue he'd get behind. No pun intended. The video became one of the most requested on MTV, and Sir Mix-a-Lot went on to win the best rap solo performance for Baby Got Back in February 93. Mac Daddy, the album that featured Baby Got Back, was certified platinum, selling a million copies. 
And even though Sir Mix-a-Lot never replicated the success, he left quite a mark with his career-defining single. It's been the butt of endless sitcom jokes, pun intended. It's been referenced in movies like Shrek and 2016's Sing, and it was re-envisioned for this weird Burger King ad with SpongeBob in 2009. I like square butts and I cannot lie. Squid and sea star can't deny. When a sponge walks in four corners in his pants like he got phone book implants, the crowd shouts. All the ladies stare. Hang those pants are square. Plus, there's been countless rap tributes, including the Mac Daddy of them all, Anaconda by Nicki Minaj, which has been called a creative reimagining of Baby Got Back from a woman's perspective. Okay, let's slow it down for the next one. The song that eventually knocked Baby Got Back out of its number one spot was a sentimental song from a movie soundtrack. This used to be my This Used to Be My Playground by Madonna was included on the soundtrack for the movie A League of Their Own, which the singer also starred in. She joined Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, and Tom Hanks in a movie that taught the world there's no crying in baseball. The groundbreaking film focused on female athletes, starred mostly women, and was directed by the great Penny Marshall. So it was pretty fitting that Madonna, the original girl boss, would lend her talent to the soundtrack. She reportedly put the song together in two frenzied days toward the end of the sessions for 1992's Erotica. And she apparently came up with the melody by humming over computer-generated chords and rewriting a string arrangement while an orchestra waited patiently in the studio. When this used to be my playground hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, it was a big milestone for Madonna. It broke her tie with Whitney Houston to become the female singer with the most number one singles at the time. But keep listening, because that competition between Madonna and Whitney wasn't over just yet. This Used to Be My Playground was number one for just one week, making way for a song that topped the charts for the next three months. End of the Road was the first number one for boys to men. The four sweet voice singers with killer harmonies met at the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts. Legend has it they got their break after getting backstage at a New Edition concert and singing for Michael Bivens, a founding member of New Edition and Belle Biv DeVoe. After the meeting, they were signed to Motown and in 1991 released their first album, Cooley High Harmony. It was an instant hit with songs like Motown Philly which has been described as a jazzy New Jack swing banger with sweet vocal harmonies and a hip-hop sheen. Motown Philly peaked at number two on the Hot 100, and another single, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday, hit number two. But it wasn't until End of the Road that Boys to Men finally made it to the top spot. End of the Road, which was first released on the soundtrack for the Eddie Murphy movie Boomerang, was co-written by Babyface, who originally wanted to perform the song himself but eventually he let it go to Boys to Men. When End of the Road became the song of the summer and fall of 92, Motown re-released Cooley High Harmony with End of the Road tacked on as a bonus track. All told, the record reached 9 million copies sold, making it certified platinum nine times. 
The success landed Boyz II Men an opening slot on MC Hammer's Too Legit To Quit Tour and won them the Grammy for Best R&B Song and Best R&B Performance by a duo or group with a vocal at the 35th Annual Grammys. Their reign of the top spot in 1992 finally ended November 14th, when the theme song from a short-lived TV show took over. How do you talk to an angel? How do you hold it close to where you are? How do you talk to an angel was sung by Jamie Walters, the breakout star of the Fox TV show The Heights. Created by Aaron Spelling, who was trying to replicate the success of one of his other shows, Beverly Hills 90210, The Heights centered around a fictional band of the same name. The show ran on Friday nights beginning in August 1992, but never really found an audience and was off the air by November 92, after only 12 episodes. Jamie Walters, the actor who sang How Do You Talk to an Angel?, jumped over to 90210, where he played Ray Pruitt, Donna's abusive boyfriend. And here's a little trivia for you. How Do You Talk to an Angel was the first TV theme song to hit number one since November 1985, when the theme from Miami Vice held the spot for one week. And it was the first fictional band to take number one since 1969, when the cartoon band The Archies reached the top of the charts with their song Sugar Sugar, and stayed there for four weeks. How Do You Talk to an Angel may have been a forgettable song, but the final number one for 1992 is a timeless classic by an artist with a long list of generation-defining hits. And even though she didn't write it, it will forever be associated with her. I Will Always Love You, performed by Whitney Houston, took over the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 on November 28, 1992. The song, which was included on the soundtrack for the movie The Bodyguard, starring Houston and Kevin Costner, seems tailor-fit for a movie about a superstar singer and her bodyguard who fall in love but can't be together. But the song was actually written about another real-life relationship, Country legend Dolly Parton penned the song in 1973 after she decided to end her working relationship with Porter Wagner. She considered Wagner her mentor and wanted him to know even though it was time for her to move on, she would always love him. The song was a modest hit for Dolly in the 70s and again in the 80s when she re-recorded it for the movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It's been covered by countless artists, including Kenny Rogers, Michael Bolton, and Linda Ronstadt. Even Elvis wanted to take a go at it. But Dolly turned him down because the king of rock and roll wanted a portion of the song's publishing rights. In the 90s, when Whitney Houston was recording songs for the Bodyguard soundtrack, she originally planned to use What Becomes of the Broken Hearted by Jimmy Ruffin as the lead single. Now, Whitney found out the song had already been used on the soundtrack for the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, so she dropped the idea. It was Kevin Costner who put her on to I Will Always Love You, playing her the Linda Ronstadt version. Whitney ran with it, making the song her own, right from the acapella introduction. If I should stay 
Even Dolly Parton agreed. In an interview, she said that the way Whitney took her simple song and made it such a mighty thing, it almost became hers. Dolly incidentally made about $10 million in royalties in the 90s alone because of the bodyguard version of her song. But in true Dolly fashion, she paid tribute to Whitney by investing the money into a black neighborhood in Nashville. I Will Always Love You stayed in the number one spot for the rest of 1992 and the first two months of 1993. It held the spot for a total of 13 weeks. And that was a record until 1995 when Mariah and Boyz II Men each had number one singles that stayed at the top for 16 weeks. It also put Whitney back in a tie with Madonna for the female artist with the most number ones. And I Will Always Love You also won a Grammy for Best Record of the Year in 1994, and it earned Whitney a Grammy for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Female. Today, the album The Bodyguard remains the best-selling soundtrack of all time, as well as the best-selling album by any female artist ever. It's no surprise that I Will Always Love You was the song Whitney's family chose to play at her funeral in 2012. In all, there were 13 songs that held the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1992, which was the lowest number since the chart was created in 1958. And it's important to point out that the Billboard Hot 100 doesn't reflect everything that was happening in music in a certain year. 1992 is also remembered for loads of other musicians who didn't top the Hot 100, like Arrested Development, Ministry, PJ Harvey, and of course Nirvana and Pearl Jam, who continued their ascent into the mainstream. I'd love to know what you were listening to in 1992. Send me a message on social media or by email. We're on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. The email for the show is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. And a very special thanks to radio legend Tarzan Dan for helping us out with the intro. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 